Hello, and welcome to Inside the Physician's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy Borans. I am the founder and chief medical officer for Advanced Medical Strategies. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the opioid epidemic. We have talked about the opioid epidemic in past webinars, but things continue to heat up and there's lots going on there. And so I thought it would be really valuable for everybody if we talked some more about that. There is a lot of information out there about the opioid crisis, and I don't think I can do it justice without splitting the podcast into two sessions. So that's what we're going to do. Today on our the first part of our episode, we're going to talk about the opioid crisis and the problem and what is contributing to that. And then we will do a second podcast where we talk about what are we doing to stem the, the tide of the opioid crisis. So please stick with us and join us for both parts. I think you'll get a lot of great information. And as always, if you have any questions, you can always feel free to contact me at my email, which is stacy.borans at mdstrat.com. So Let's just give a little bit of background about opioids. I think that would be helpful for those of you who aren't familiar at all with them or have been living under a rock for the past three years and have never heard of the opioid crisis. So opioids are drugs that act on the nervous system to relieve pain. They have um, central nervous system depressant effects and are principally prescribed for short-term pain relief. There are times when opioids are prescribed chronically for patients who have ongoing chronic pain, such as metastatic cancer, but there's a lot of debate and a lot of controversy about how those patients should be treated, um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we, we go through the, the episode. So how do, how do opioids work? Well, what they do is they bind to receptors in the brain that are involved in the perception of pain and reward. And so that is um, how they work. And what happens are there's two different types of addictions that can actually occur with op opioids due to their mechanism of action. There is um, a physical dependence on the opioids as well as a psychological dependence on the opioids. And both of those can constitute some form of addiction. Addiction is really a, a primary chronic disease of the brain that involves um, reward, motivation, um, memory, and sort of related circuitry. And any dysfunction in these circuits can lead to very characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations um, of addiction. And this is then reflected in the person who then pathologically pursues that reward and or relief by substance abuse and and, and other behaviors. So addiction is really characterized by an ability, inability to consistently abstain um, from the drug, have impairment in behavioral control. P these patients have cravings, they have diminished recognition of significant problems with their behavior and, um, and difficulties in their interpersonal relationship. And like other chronic diseases, um, particularly such as alcohol, um, addiction. This uh, addiction to opioids involves a cycle of relapse and remission. And without treatment or engagement in a recovery process, addiction is progressive and can result in disability or premature death, which, as you know, is what we're seeing really all across the, the country at this point. 
So why why are we in this crisis? Why is America in this this situation? And well, the worldwide consumption of opioids has increased dramatically in the past few decades. Approximately 80%, that's 80% of the global opioid supply is consumed in America. So the rest of the world accounts for only 20% of the opioid consumption. So this is a primarily American problem um, in terms of the the um, extent that we're seeing it to at this point. In the past few decades, 99% of all hydrocodone is consumed in America, 80% of all oxycodone, 58% of all methadone, 54% of all hydromorphone, 49% of all fentanyl and 43% of all meperidine is consumed here in the United States. Opioid prescriptions, um, mainly hydrocodone and oxycodone products, has increased from around 76 million in 1991 to nearly 240 million prescriptions back in 2014. And so that number really has only um, gone gone up. It amounts to over 700,000 prescriptions every day being dispensed in the the US. Opioid um, abuse or dependency has increased from 1.4 million people in 2004 to almost 3 million in 2016. And 78 people die every single day in the US of an opioid related overdose. So the the epidemic is is staggering at this point and we really really need to find ways to combat this and uh, figure out how we're going to change what is going on here in the the US and again i'm going to talk so, some more in our next episode about how we can do that but i really want to give you the um, the extent of the the problem Prescription opioids are actually regulated um, by a Controlled Substance Act in the the U.S., but it doesn't really seem to um, be doing much at this point for uh, for the crisis at, at large. And we'll talk about sort of why that is um, in the in the next few minutes. So, who are the the high risk groups? Well, it's um, Caucasians and Native Americans. It is men ages forty five to fifty four. And it is rural area um, Americans. Genetics can affect the the rate of relapse by over twenty two percent. So there are some um, some hereditary properties that can be involved in this. Ninety percent of all addictions start in adolescent and young adult years. So when people talk about the the gateway drugs. And I know there's been a lot of debate over in the past over marijuana and whether that's a gateway drug. Um, but the truth is, it's it's really prescription pain medicines that are the gateway drugs. And so what happens for a lot of these patients are they're prescribed opioids mostly appropriately for short-term pain relief. Uh, they've had a, a surgery, uh, a dental procedure, um, broken arm, something has happened and then they are placed on a prescription opioid. And dependence can develop very quickly. Within 21 days, you can actually become physically and psychologically dependent upon the opioids. Well, at the time that your prescription runs out, 
you still feel that you need this pain medication, whether that is psychological or physical, where you're feeling phantom pain, the drive and the desire is there to go and get these opioids. And now you've run into a problem where your prescription has run out. And so you can't get another prescription or maybe you can get another prescription and that sort of cycle goes along for the next few months where you go to multiple providers and and you can get these. But eventually that runs out. And what happens is those people then turn to street drugs like heroin because it is easy and it is cheap to get and it is actually much more inexpensive than prescription pain medicines. And so we end up with these folks who are out there on the streets using and abusing heroin where the prescription pain medicine was the the gateway drug. And there really haven't been any studies that link marijuana to much more aggressive drug dependency behaviors. Um, I think we really need to sort of look at ourselves as a country and, and acknowledge where the problem is so that we can actually move forward and, and solve the, the, the crisis. So as I mentioned, many patients will utilize multiple providers to obtain sort of these, you know, large stocks of, of opioids. 53% of addicts obtain prescription pain relievers from a relative or a friend for free. So somebody will give them that drug or go and get a prescription and then give the, the drug to the, to the patients. Um, So about 4,000 people every day initiate non-medical use of prescription opioids. 580 people start to use heroin every day. We have four to five new heroin abusers that start out by misusing these prescription opioids. As I mentioned, it is much cheaper and easier to, to find. You know, our perceptions of what an opioid addict look like really have changed over the, the years. In the past, what we've really looked at, and you would particularly see this depicted in movies and TV, are sort of your young street junkies, you know, strung out, living on the, living in their car, doing what they can to to really uh, get these opioids. And although um, misuse and abuse does start in the younger years, the fastest rate of rise is not in the adolescent and, and young Americans. It's actually in older folks. And when I say older, I include myself in that population. And we're going to talk about sort of the, the demographics. But this has really moved into suburban wealthy America. This is your neighbor, your friends, your parents, um, depending on how old you are, you know, your, your children. And it exists in every corner of society. And people who say that could never happen here are really deluding themselves because it can happen everywhere. In fact, I have a friend who is a lovely, lovely lady. She lives in a, a home um, by herself, but she has a, uh, an, an apartment that uh, is above her that she actually rent, rented out to um, a, a very nice woman and, and her son. And this woman was probably, you know, in her mid-40s. And my friend would have conversations with her every day in passing. How, how are you? What's going on? What's happening? Talking about the day-to-day things that you talk about with your neighbors or somebody who is, you know, living adjacent to you. And my friend came home from work one day to find um, police cars all spread out uh, around her her home. And she really had no idea what happened. And, you know, when she obviously went up to, you know, inquire what was going on, it turned out that the woman who had been renting um, the, the space from her had overdosed and died from a, um, from a prescription opioid. 
and um, her son had come home and her son was in his mid 20s to to find her basically dead on the the bathroom floor so I live in a very lovely area outside of suburban Philadelphia. Um, you know, it is an area people would classify as upper middle class. And so this is happening everywhere. You really do need to adjust your perceptions of what you think um, people who are opioid addicts um, or any drug addicts actually look like. Um, you know, it is, it is somebody who could look exactly like you. So how bad is the crisis? Well, it's pretty horrible. Um, the economic costs of the opioid epidem- epidemic are really staggering. Um, there is $9 billion worth of opioid analgesic sales per year. One of, any, of every 25 adults is prescribed an opioid, such as oxycodone or hydrocodone, um, for chronic pain. There's a $78.5 billion total economic burden from the opioid crisis. That sort of breaks down um, into a variety of categories. $55 billion are from health and social costs. $20 billion are from ER and inpatient care for, uh, for an opioid overdose. Um, ER visits are up 120% related to pharmaceutical abuse from uh, 2004 to 2015. About 420,000 of that is uh, opioid abuse and 425,000 of that are for benzodiazepines, things like Valium and, and Ativan. There's a $21.5 billion burden for fatal overdose costs. We have $20 billion in lost productivity, and that is um, uh, individuals, including reduced productive hours and lost production for folks who have um, ended up in, in jail. We have $7.7 billion in criminal justice costs, and about 25% of the entire economic burden is actually funded by public sources. And that includes costs funded by public insurance, such as Medicaid, Medicare, and veterans programs, as well as other government sources for for substance abuse um, and treatment. So that's just the economic costs. Um, the health costs are, are really even far worse to, to talk about. Um, opioid-related deaths are up over um, 20% in um, in the last year, there was a 16% increase in 2014, um, in 2015, and then we've had even a higher increase for 2015 and 2016. Um, the, the data isn't in yet for, for 2017, and this is all coming from the uh, Centers for Disease Control data. Um, uh, opioid uh, overdose deaths from 2002 to 2015, there was an almost threefold increase in the total number of deaths from opioids. And that includes both opioid analgesics that are um, prescription as, lo- as well as heroin and illicit synthetic um, opioids. This is uh, mainly driven largely by uh, overdoses of illegally uh, manufactured um, uh, heroin and uh, fentanyl. The, um, the drug overdose mortality, the numbers are, are even more depressing. That has increased from 12.3 per 100,000 people in 2010 to 16.3 per 100,000 people in 2015. Um, it has increased 
the 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 mortality uh, the overdose mortality rate has increased in 30 states and has decreased only in two states um, and then for those um, two states which were Florida and South Carolina that had decreased rates it actually rose again after the um, after the initial decrease so it's actually gone up but still remains a little bit decreased if that makes sense the highest rates of opioid use are in West Virginia New Hampshire Kentucky and Ohio um, and again it's uh, sort of um, not limited at all to rural America, but it does show you that the highest rates of use are, are happening a little bit more in some um, some more rural states. Um, again, dispelling the myth that this is an urban uh, crisis, uh, largely driven by, by poor, economically disadvantaged people. That just is not the case. The highest rate of opioid use are in people who are ages 45 to 54. So again, not your teenagers and not your young folks. We're looking at you, suburban, middle-aged America. The greatest percentage of um, use increase has actually been in people who are ages 55 to 64. So for those of you who are a little younger than me, that's your parents, and for those of you who might be a lot younger than me, that could even be your grandparents, their rate of increase is actually up um, 11%. And so this has prompted a lot of um, uh, a lot of the states to declare um, uh, an opioid um, crisis and, and call it a public health um, disaster. And a disaster declaration is important because it was designed to create a legal basis for the state to issue um, medical standing orders that allows community groups and law enforcement and members of the public to dispense and administer naloxone. And we're going to talk a lot about naloxone um, in the second part of our, our, our podcast. It also opens the door to, um, to funding to uh, be able to combat the, the crisis. Um, President Trump did several months ago um, it, declare this to be you know more of a state of emergency. Um, he did not call it a, a public health disaster and no monies, no federal monies have actually been released up to this point uh, to combat the, the crisis. And it's of vital importance that those monies do make their way down to the, the state in order to um, be able to allow local agencies to to do the things that they need to do within their communities to help combat the the crisis, um, we we've heard sort of in the past few weeks that um, that these monies might be flowing and that things might be turning around. Um, and there's some opioid task forces that have been done at the the federal level. Um, there is some controversy and debate about that because the uh, the people who've been chosen to head up this task force are very um, inexperienced or have no experience in the public health sector. So it, it, it's a matter of um, how how fast these folks can get up to speed in order to, to get more information and get more process and policy going for, for the crisis. So there's a, a variety of different um, commonly prescribed opioids. I'm not going to go into great detail um, uh, about them. Uh, most of you are very familiar with them. Oxycontin is the one that um, uh, I'm sure most people are familiar with. Vicodin, Percocet, uh, Demerol, Duragesic, uh, Dilaudid. So there, there's a ton of them that are, that are out there. So let's move on to my particular favorite topic, which is who is responsible? What is going on and how uh, and how has this come to be? 
Well, I'll give you a little hint. There's actually plenty of blame to, to go around. There isn't really any one um, sort of sector that we can blame, but we're going to try. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with Big Pharma. Uh, because they're obviously in the news, and certainly they um, are, are have definite responsibilities for what is going on. So there's been a lot of marketing hype, a lot of false claims, and um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Purdue Pharmaceuticals because they uh, have actually made the news several times for uh, for different uh, lawsuits related to these types of of incidents. So back in 2004. Purdue Pharmaceuticals actually um, was fined $10 million um, by the state of West Virginia, and that was the result of a court case documenting that sales reps from Purdue actually downplayed OxyContin's addictive qualities to physicians, as well as making boasts about the drug's efficacy, which really had no, no basis at all, in fact. So they got a slap on the wrist in 2004 to the tune of, of $10 million, and um they decided that, you know, they didn't really learn their lesson. And so in 2007, they actually uh, were slapped with $600 million in various fines. And that was after pleading guilty to misleading doctors and the public about OxyContin yet again. And while these probably seem like hefty penalties, I mean, I'd be thrilled if somebody gave me $10 million, never mind $600 million. Purdue could easily afford this. The total sales of OxyContin from 1996 through just 2002, it was nearly $5 billion. So this really does not seem like um, a ton of money, you know, for them. Um, And in fact, if you remember, 2004, uh, Purdue had to pay, you know, $10 million. And just last week, there was um, an investigation um, uh, report that was published um, from the the Senate, and it was um, spearheaded by Missouri's Senator Claire McCaskill, and it looked at opioid makers and what they were doing with some of their profits that they actually had, and so what they what this study looked at was examining advocacy funding by the makers of the top five opioid painkillers by worldwide sales in 2015. So financial information that the companies actually provided to the Senate showed that they spent more than $10 million between 2012 and 2017 to support 14 advocacy groups and affiliated doctors. So that fine that they got back in 2004 for Purdue of $10 million really was nothing because them and a whole bunch of other, um, four other ones, at least in this study, drug makers are funding at least that amount to advocacy groups on advocacy groups on behalf of, of those drugs. So these, um, uh, 14 nonprofit groups, which mostly represented pain patients and specialists received nearly $9 million from the drug makers and doctors affiliated with those nonprofit groups actually received another one and a half million, accounting for just over the ten million dollars. Most of the groups that were included in this probe actually took um, very industry-friendly positions, and that included issuing medical guidelines promoting opioids for chronic pain, lobbying to defeat or include exceptions to state limits on opioid prescribing and criticizing landmark prescribing guidelines from the, um, the, the CDC. And the way that this 
um, uh, sort of broke down is Purdue, our, our friend Purdue from earlier. Um, and they, they are the maker of OxyContin. They contributed the most to the groups. They funneled $4.7 million to the uh, organizations and the physicians from 2012 through um, through last year in 2017. And actually, the tactics that have been highlighted in this report, and this report actually just came out about uh, about 10 days ago or so, um, are at the heart of the lawsuits filed by hundreds of state and local governments against the, the opioid industry. And these lawsuits allege that the drug makers mislead doctors and patients about the risks of opioids by enlisting these front groups, such as these advocacy groups and what they call key opinion leaders, who oversell the drug's benefits and encourage overprescribing. And in the, the lawsuits, the government actually is seeking money and changes to how the industry operates, including the end of a, of the use of these outside groups in order to to push their drugs, so um, so we'll you know see what happens. Obviously, lawsuits take a long time to get through the courts, but um, it, there's definitely some some progress. Um, and per- Purdue, as I said, being the the largest offender, funneling four point seven million dollars. The next um, closest is actually Insys Therapeutics. Um, who uh, provided more than three and a half million dollars to these interest groups and um, physicians, um, according to to the report. Last year, that company's founder was indicted for allegedly offering bribes to doctors to write prescriptions for the company's um, spray-based fentanyl medication. Uh, a company spokesperson did not uh, comment at all on that report, but that information is is out there. And then the other three are Depomed, Janssen, and Mylan. And they contributed $1.4 million, $650,000, and $26,000 in, in payments, respectively. Um, in fact, Mylan objected to being included in the report because of its really minuscule role in this opioid sales and, and, and marketing. Um, and $26,000 is obviously, you know, much, much less than, uh, than what you saw from, from Purdue and some of the, the other companies. So obviously, Big Pharma has a major role to, to play in this. There are wholesalers who who collude knowingly with what we call these uh, sham pain clinics, flooding the black market with drugs. There are providers, what we call pill mill doctors, um, who and uh, who are you know drug enablers and just profiteers. Uh, the government is not. Uh, exempt from this. There's the special interest uh, lobbyist pressures that you have. Um, And in fact, the lobbyists have resulted um, in some uh, interesting uh, statistics in that civil case filings against wholesalers actually plunged from 131 in the fiscal year of 2011 to only 64 in the fiscal year of 2016. So lobbyists have been able to reduce civil case suits by um, by fifty percent um, just from their their pressure on the the government. Um, so who else is responsible? Obviously um, the patients themselves, um, the general public. As as I mentioned, a lot of these patients get their um, get their opioids from a, a friend or a family member. You know. From for free, so you know I don't know if you know anybody who's ever given an extra Vicodin or, or Percocet away. People tend to you know hold on to medication that they haven't used um, completely in case they you know might need it a, again, um, which is not the best thing to be doing with the the opioids. In fact, last summer there was a uh, an article in um, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, which is uh, sort of 
the acronym for that is is JAMA, uh, that showed that over two thirds of adults actually reported unused prescription opioids after uh, a surgery. And researchers looked at data from six studies that examined the oversupply of prescription opioids after seven types of surgical procedures, um, and that included a, a variety of different things. And about 800 uh, patients in this uh, study received an opioid prescription after the surgery. And what they found is that 67 to 92% of patients across those studies reported unused opioids. So two-thirds to almost 100% reported that they didn't use their medication. They found that they didn't need them. They found that Tylenol or Advil or Aleve was perfectly appropriate or that they only needed it for a few days and then just sort of kept the rest of it on hand. Um, up to 21% actually did not even fill their opioid prescription, and up to 14% filled the prescription but didn't take any of the, the pills, again, most often because of adequate uh, pain control. 75% of these patients store their opioids in, a lo- in an unlocked area, meaning anybody in the home could have access to it, including their family members and anybody who's actually doing work in your house would be able to open up your medicine chest and, and get this. And only 4 to 30% of patients intended to dispose of their unused pills. So this is how these medications make their way to other people. They're hanging around, literally just falling out of the, the, the medicine chest for anybody to to, um, to get a hold of. So we as patients, um, you know, are, are, are also responsible inadvertently in, in many situations for this, but, uh, certainly we have to do our part to, to prevent that. And then certainly dentists and physicians, um, are, are part of the, the, the problem. And actually, uh, when we talk about dentists, a recent study that was done by UPenn's, uh, School of Dentistry, found that um, over 50% of opioids prescribed after wisdom teeth removal are not taken by the the patient. Again, people find that they just don't need them. And on average, 28 uh, opioid pills are prescribed, and after three weeks, they have 15 pills remaining. So there's about 100 million pills wasted just from dental surgery alone. And again, those make their way to the the black market. Physicians are responsible. And yes, even the the well-meaning ones, uh, we tend to maybe over-treat or over-diagnose. We don't have the best tools to determine whether or not somebody is having pain. There isn't tremendous objective criteria. We rely a lot on what they call a pain intensity scale. And if you were sort of sitting here with me and I could show you on my, my laptop, it, it, it really is a very, very scientific uh, chart, this pain intensity scale. It consists of uh, a series of smiley faces um, and frowny faces, and you basically check off how you're feeling today. So we don't have the, the, the greatest methods um, at this point to, uh, to, to really determine objectively when patients are having pain. So those are all the, the folks that are, that are responsible. Um, we could probably go on and on for that, but who has that kind of time? I'm sure you guys have other things to, to do. Um, opioid addiction obviously has uh, comorbid conditions that go along with it. Those break down into both medical and psychiatric. Um, some of the, uh, the, the, the most common ones that you see are HIV, hepatitis uh, A, B, and C. Um, you see uh, constipation. And in fact, the opioid prescription epidemic has actually caused a whole other market for other types of drugs. And there are um, there's drugs out there such as Movantic, and I'm sure you might have seen the direct-to-consumer advertising for this. And that's for opioid-induced 
constipation. So we've created really a whole cottage industry um, for all of the side effects from opioids just due to the epidemic. Um, Psychiatric diagnoses really go hand in hand. Um, Patients suffer from psychiatric illness as well as substance abuse disorders. It's really a chicken and the egg, which, which came first. The most commonly seen disorders would include depression, anxiety, uh, personality disorders, eating disorders, panic disorders, um, and schizophrenia. And then finally, the last thing that I just want to talk about are, are really sort of our smallest victims of this this crisis. I don't think that they they really get um, enough sort of publicity to to talk about, and that um, that are that is our babies, and um, the smallest victims um, of this crisis develop a lot of times what we call neonatal abstinence syndrome. And these um, are babies who are born suffering the physiologic effects of the mother's addiction and will actually go through a period of, of withdrawal. The National Institute of Health reports a five-fold increase um, of neonatal abstinence disorder with 80% of that increase actually occurring in rural areas. The average incidence of needle, neonatal abstinence syndrome is six per 1,000 live births, three states Maine, Vermont, and West Virginia, the aver- the incidents there are 30 per 1,000 births. So it is f- more than fivefold what you would normally see um, as the average incident. The hospital costs for neonatal abstinence syndrome are $1.5 billion. The average cost per infant is almost $100,000. And this disorder accounts for 50% of the NICU hospital days that you would see in some facilities. Um, Many of these babies require a NICU stay until the symptoms have resolved. And then we also have the problem of where are they going to discharge to? particularly, um, you know, for if the, the mother is unable to, to care for the baby because she's either um, in rehab, which is what we'd like to see, or, or still using. So there isn't really any other treatment for neonatal abstinence syndrome other than supportive care and getting the baby through, through the, the withdrawal symptoms. So that's the first part about the opioids. That is the part that's the most depressing um, to give you the extent of the, the crisis. In part two of our uh, podcast episode for opioids, what we're going to do is to talk about um, the treatments, what are we doing to try and, and stem the tide, and um, and some of the, the uh, enlightening projects that are actually going on. So I hope that you'll join us for part two and that you've enjoyed part one.